can you can try to like meme it into ultrasound money but what i would rather see is real world stuff that has value to humans like a wireless cell plan like something that is external to crypto that is forcing somebody that's like you know did their job and grew some food and got money to pay a validator to go include transactions that kind of like real world tie into the economy i think is really really important and we need more of that and stuff that's not reflexive i'd rather see things priced in real world assets instead of soul and those generate enough fees for validators to pay themselves all right everyone so on empire you obviously know that we talk a lot about the institutions coming into crypto and that is why we are super excited to share that we are hosting the digital asset summit we've hosted this since 2019 it's coming up in London, March 18th to 20th. Don't miss your chance to get ahead of the curve. You can get 20% off with code EMPIRE20. We'll see you in London. Hey everyone, if you have been listening to Empire, you know that Santi and I are fed up with unaffordable fees and frustrating transaction speeds that make the on-chain experience basically unusable. So the Arbitrum team reached out and they showed us the platform. They showed us what you can do on Arbitrum. Whatever you're doing, you can experience frictionless transactions at lightning speed on Arbitrum. So head over to portal.arbitrum.io and check it out. What's up, everyone? Before we jump into today's episode, I'm excited to share Empire's first ever security partner. Harpy is the best tool to prevent your wallet from theft in real time. Harpy is not just a security solution. They are a peace of mind solution. But don't just take our word for it. Harpy is the only wallet security solution that protected 100% of its users from attacks like the Ledger one in Q4, which was an off-chain signature attack. To learn more about Harpy, click the link in the show notes or visit harpy.io forward slash empire. All right, everyone. Uh, Special Lab, 13 months ago, we recorded uh, an episode with uh, Anatoly and Ben. Ben Sprango, head of BD over Solana Foundation, totally founder at Solana Labs. I think I got that right. Um, And the episode was basically around the premise of can Solana move past SBF? And that was, I think, 13 months ago to the date. And uh, since then, Solana has, in fact, moved past FBF, uh, SBF. And a lot has happened. So I think like totally, I mean, we want to make this episode more about 2024, but totally, I think I'd throw this first question to you of just like, did it, was it always obvious to you that we would move past the FTX and SBF debacle? Or were there some like late nights there sitting in bed thinking, I'm, this, this might be the end here? Um, My stomach was definitely churning. Raj is much better at this is nothing. I mean, <laughs> all the ecosystem teams are, are building it. Like, but like, I'm, I don't know. Uh, it, it definitely felt like uh, a moment where I was terrified. Oh man. Like the, the first thing that I thought was like all the ecosystem teams had their funds in FTX and all their runways now zero and we're dead. <laughs> Luckily that was not the case. Most teams, very few teams actually had any cash on there. Uh, and the second one was that like, I didn't think there was going to be an exodus. I just thought that the a really long, prolonged bear market is just like kills funding. And the new batch of new startups that come in and build stuff is really, really important just to keep momentum going. Um, and that was like kind of, I thought, oh man, like a really long bear market and like FTX because of the size of the implosion is going to prolong it. And within like 18 to 24 months, it's just going to be worse than the bottom of the last bear, which was bad when ETH was at 80. Like Amir from 
Zero X, I don't know if he remembers it. I was getting coffee with him. He was like, Dexes are dead. It's literally, <laughs> he told me that. Like, I mean, <laughs> there's no point. <laughs> so, like, I thought it was going to get there. And that's for a smaller ecosystem, that's much harder to survive that. Um, but, like, yeah, I'm very surprised by how fast things rebounded, to be honest. Uh, maybe Vander totally, um, you know, from your standpoint, like, what would you attribute the market, like, waking up to Solana over the course of the last 13 months? Bonk, just, I've been hearing you totally being very vocal about why you're building Solana. Like, the, I think you have a very good understanding of the type of user that is going to use this, whereas I think in crypto, historically, it's been, let's just build this cool decentralized systems, but not really, but I think you have a very unique appreciation of why you're building Yeah. Um, my view is that like it's the builders that are building on top that ship products that go get users. So the infrastructure layer is middleware. Like we don't actually make anything happen, right? We just unblock devs, and then somebody like Armani builds Madlads and attracts a bunch of users, and then builds Backpack and builds a exchange now, right? Like that person is doing all the kind of like value creation, all the drive and everything else. And because of somebody like Armani and like a whole bunch of other devs, opportunity for like Nam to build Bonk and capture like the imagination of a bunch of people arise because Bonk is able to integrate across like 50 projects, right? And like people start messing around with it and then like that catches fire. So like we just did a pretty good job shipping the system with not too many bugs <laughs> to where those devs were not blocked. That's kind of how I, I look at it. We didn't screw it up. <laughs> that That's like the, and it's hard not to do that because these systems are so complex and you're trying to optimize for like a bajillion different variables. But I can't imagine we would be here if it wasn't for those developers. Cause like, what's the point of a fast blockchain if no one's using it. Right. And we're not building products for users. We're like the, the core team that's working on the protocol with Firedancer and Jira and all those guys are working on middleware. They're optimizing latencies and stuff like that. It, it takes a bunch of devs to go build products that, that make stuff happen. And I think like Breakpoint has been like a place for a lot of developers to do launches and announce products. And it just kind of happened that way. It's not like a, no one's coordinating it, but like it just, started happening simply because it's a good time to do announcements and like this breakpoint there were like over 30 close close to 50 or something like that just different launches of products and protocols and like integrations and all this stuff and it kind of all like finally i think got over the hump well i, I also was excited i i all of that um for sure i think that something that I've sensed kind of like broadly in the crypto ecosystem, like right around the time of Breakpoint or maybe right before is people are frustrated in this bear market with applications that are still hard to use. And they're thinking about like their long-term thesis around why they're building in this space and why they're, where this is going long-term. And people were like, look, like, you know, fees are still high. It's still clunky for like the average person to use this stuff. 
And then there was this point where like some people started trying some of the Solana applications and some of like the really cool stuff that people are building over here. And that kind of led into Breakpoint where there were more announcements and more cool stuff. And that started to really feed the fire, which got more people using the chain. And then once people use it, like they make a swap on Jupiter or they try something, they're like, oh my God, this is like complete, I don't feel like I'm using a blockchain. And I think that kind of precipitated everything that we saw after that, where they're like, okay, you know, maybe the way that Solana is architected is the way that we get this millions or billions of concurrent blockchain users um, onto Web3 or onto crypto long-term. And I think that there was a little bit of a, a mindset shift in that capacity that that happened. Uh, was there a turning point, Ben, that made it really obvious? Was there a point in 2023 where you're like, this is... This is yeah, yeah the, totally. for me, the Mad, Lad, Mad Lads launch was that turning point um, because yeah. you kind of saw the NFT because NFTs were dying across the entire space and they were because Solana is smaller than Ethereum, they were hurting even more than Ethereum. Like it was just like kind of the energy was really being sucked out and just Tristan and, and Armani did such a good job creating that community and, and building like excitement around it. So when we saw it launch and it like captured, you know, volumes and everything else at the top of the charts, I was like, okay, there's like really, really good devs still able to capture market share. And that, that to me was like the turning point where things I think psychologically rebounded for a lot of the developers. Cause once you see like somebody else do it, you're like, yeah. Oh, I can do better. You know, <laughs> like, like like startup founders are always like think that they're the the best right but they need to see an example of somebody succeed they see that road and then they think they can do a better job and that that's what keeps driving everything mine's a mine's a little bit of an intangible um but i would say that everyone here is familiar with mert but when mert really started to find his voice on twitter that <laughs> felt <Mert>. that <laughs> felt like that felt up, like a point yeah. It, it, that felt like a hardening point where it was like, we're going no lower than where Mert will allow the ecosystem so you to go. You want to hear something funny, Ben? Is, so we have calls <laughs> with all these other like L1s and L2s and stuff and different ecosystems. And, you know, we're talking to them about, you know, one of the ways Blockworks makes money is like sponsorships and ads and stuff like that. And, you know, we're talking to them about their marketing strategies. And everyone's like, we I'm just Mert. need our Mert. We just need a Mert. <laughs> Can you help us get a Mert? <laughs> oh, he, he's going to um, love this. Yeah. yeah. I guess... I, um, I want to ask, you know, I think, you know, Tully, you, I, I've seen you be very, you're probably one of the founders that is most engaging in Twitter and like taking criticism. Solana's no, not perfect. I think you're probably the first one to call that out and appreciate that. As you think about the current state of Solana, you know, you, you talk about all these applications and people like bridging over to Solana and having like this aha moment. What are some of the things that you guys are focused on? First, let's start. What are the things that Solana still needs to figure out as a as a like a L one, um, and then what are the priorities for this year? So, like, uh, I look at this as kind of a, like the Linux kernel or any operating system, and because hardware changes, the software is never done. You're always going to have to go like, oh, there's caches are now bigger, or like this thing is now slower, and there's more cores, and you got to like go rejigger stuff. It's always going to be the case unless humanity stops building silicon and then we should all focus on bunker coins. So as long as as long as human progress is moving forward, the software that kind of tries to expose that hardware up and get out of the way of the hardware is going to need some some work. Where where I feel like Solana's done is when that work is kind of moving downhill. 
And I almost feel like we're there, but I feel like we're actually like with Fire Dancer out, I will feel like there's no single point of failure left anymore because now you have two different client teams. They both understand they have like bus factor, you know, there's two bus factor, two, two people for every component, like two teams, two different code bases. That to me is like a really, really important hump. And once that's there, I feel like it's really, really downhill from there. And there's still going to be changes like that are, you know, performance improvements. And it's just a bunch of people looking at Grafana and doing analysis and stuff like that. I think for the most part, we're almost there. The major changes that I feel like we need to fix that are kind of glaring issues that we have designs for, just got to coordinate and, and roll this stuff out are like state fees. How do we deal with like, evicting the old state that's in the chain and charging people for being in the hot state. How do we deal with like write lock saturation, like kind of like the one five, five, nine for Solana. What does that look like? It has to be multidimensional. It can't be like global in the block. All those problems we're aware of and there's designs. It's just a matter of like, you know what you need to do. You don't know the order. (laughs) The order is typically uh, it's almost like fire-driven development, as we called it. Is that like, what is the biggest kind of like glaring issue right now that's blocking developers? If developers are yelling about like fees or like transaction inclusion, you actually have to dig into the problem and understand why. Is it actually because we need a 1559 or is it a bug in the scheduler that's slowing things down so things are not getting prioritized and stuff like this is like part of the you know general day-to-day kind of like okay there's a you know there was like inscription event and things slowed down why did they slow down is it actually like saturation in the processing blocks of data and whatever and it takes like a week to figure it out oh, okay okay this is the bug let's go fix it um i think like yeah, my, my, my feeling is that like the ecosystem devs should focus on getting Firedancer out because mm-hmm. that's a very, very huge milestone, even if that means slowing down some of the feature development that we know we need to do. And then after that, like crank out the all the, the fee optimizations and stuff like that. Yeah, Firedancer was a big, and shout out again, Mert. I think this team put out a fantastic blog really detailing Firedancer. So we don't have to go into all full detail. I would just encourage people to go and read that. To me, it was very illuminating. Can you just briefly touch on Fire Dancer yeah. its significance? So my whole vision for Solana and why I built it was that like I didn't care about store value. Bitcoin was already good at that. I didn't care about settlement. Ethereum's already good at that. What I cared about was execution and specifically making sure that information is fairly and quickly decimated across the world. Uh, And this is because if I did a bunch of trading as an amateur and every time I had a good trade, it would take a little longer to land and the data would take a little longer to arrive and somebody would get ahead of me. And what I thought was really cool is that like, if you can build a global system, that's, this is kind of the opposite of scaling. I'm like, no, we need a single shard because two shards then information's propagating at different speeds between them. You have arbitrage. So like, I'm not, I don't care about scaling. What I cared about was solving this one problem for synchronizing global information. And if you do that, you actually end up building something really fast and cheap because you utilize the hardware to its maximum capacity. 
And that means that you, you're kind of aggregating all the pipes that you have available into one giant pipe and things and prices get better that way, right? Like everything works better. And Firedancer is a second implementation by a different team coming out of jump trading that's really, really awesome high-frequency trading engineers um, that have built pipelines to handle like terabits of market data. <laughs> so they're, they like know how to manage, how to move bits through, through Silicon. Um, and they're not rewrite, they're not changing the Solana protocol. There's some stuff that they found like that could be better. And they're like, Hey, you guys should, you know, change how this hash is calculated or whatever. But the fundamental Solana protocol is the same. They're just writing it from the ground up because they see our implementation and where we end it up and they can actually do the big rewrite. Let's make this architecture as fast as hardware allows. And when they do that, they can prove out the system at much, much larger bandwidth. We were able to prove out Solana at about one gigabit, one like with like, you know, on a big box with like 200 cores, we could set, we can get it to handle like one gigabit worth of data. There with like four cores to eight cores are able to saturate 10 to 20 gigabits, which means, <laughs> so there's like an order improvement in just like, rewriting the software, knowing exactly what it's supposed to be doing from the ground up. And you can't really do that at the start. Like, sure, if we had 10 years, an infinite budget, and we would have done a whole bunch of like engineering work and testing and all this other stuff and been like, this is what it looks like. Yeah, we could have done that. But you can't do that as a startup. You have to ship and you have to get a product out. And uh, we were able to do that while maintaining the vision and getting the big bones of the design out and that to me has been like holy shit we did a really good job on the engineering side because <laughs> Solana is still like no competitors cut up to it i think in, in terms of speed and cost and the yeah. fire dancer guys didn't tell us to go rewrite a whole bunch of stuff that was stupid mm. so what, what does that do for the user totally or for the for the founder building on solana what is what does fire dancer actually enable two clients means that the probability of a bug in both clients is pretty low because two different teams are very unlikely to write the exact same bugs. So kind of like stupid bugs that could be very catastrophic to the chain, not talking about halt. I'm talking about like uh, exploit, which prints soul, right. Or something or like overwrite state, like that could be really, really catastrophic. If there's two implementations, it's very unlikely the chain will halt. If, if there's enough stake, right. Like one node will, will halt. And that's great. We, we've dealt with those. It's uh, egg in our face, you know, whatever. Within 24 hours, the chain will be back up. So if you're not time sensitive, it doesn't matter. There's no loss of funds. Um, but that's really, really important that catastrophic bugs are caught by two different implementations. So that's one thing. The other thing is that, like, since they figured out all the, all the bottlenecks, it's very, it's much, much easier for the labs engineers to know okay, this, these are the bottlenecks in these pipelines. Let's go fix those up and get the labs client to, up to speed to where Firedancer's at. And when both clients are equally fast, you can actually increase the capacity of the network so we can then start handling more and more transactions. So then we start really leveraging hardware improvements, like the number of cores that you can buy per dollar goes up. Like a system that you buy at a data center per month is is going to cost somewhere between 100 to you know 400 bucks a month no matter what you do you're never going to spend five dollars 
for a high availability system. So there's just a minimum cost to how much high availability hardware costs. And at the bottom cost, the amount of hardware you get per dollar doubles every two years. And even if Solano is running at that bottom cost, it's going to continue improving just from data centers uh, continuously updating their hardware. But I think like if there's demand, I don't see a reason why the validators won't run at like 400 bucks a month. doesn't matter, right? Like as long as there's demand, the hardware is the cheapest part. Um, In that case, broadband becomes like the the most expensive component over time. What do you imagine is the cost per terabyte out of a data center of egress? Like you just take a wild guess. Good luck. Good luck, Santi. It's 64 uh, cents. Yeah. For a terabyte? Yeah. Wow. So like uh, a single transaction that you send, like you would have a node just pay to send it to every other node. So you have the dumbest implementation. I'm going to give this, my block producer, a transaction that's 128 bytes, and it's going to send it to 10,000 machines without leveraging any kind of like anything else. It costs like a fraction of a penny. Because it's sixty-four cents for a terabyte, and a single transaction that's one hundred twenty-eight bytes. <laughs> so, yeah. right. So, Nothing. like, this is what the cost of using a blockchain should be. Because the dumbest implementation is literally the block producer sends all the data to every other node. <laughs> I, I, I yeah. think this is this is what's lost on like a, a lot of crypto Twitter too. Is that like the the novelty of the way that the Solana blockchain was architected is that it scales in this capacity where it should scale on the basis of just computing getting better into the future rather than us having to reach some sort of ceiling on saturated blocks and then needing to figure out our way out of that until we reach some new ceiling. Right. So this is this is what I think when going back to your question, you know, is is like when it comes to like people using the blockchain or people building their companies on top of this architecture, it's they can have assurances well into the future that this architecture is going to support their application, regardless of who else is building on the chain, how many people are transacting on it long term. Um, and I think that gives a lot of solace to people when they when they think about architectures that they need to be using. That's a, I wanted to ask you that, Ben, because a lot of the teams, you know, that are trying to build a DeFi protocol or an NFT, whatever, a game, they're like, hey, we're interested in some of these next gen L1s, whether it's an Opto, Sui, Say. And I've asked them, well, have you thought about just Solana, particularly Solana with Firedancer? Like, why even go through the exercise of, and, and I'm curious what you would say to that, right? Like, when you compare across, forget about Ethereum and sort of the, but some of these other kind of, um, competing at once, if you will. Yeah. So uh, usually by the time that someone comes through my inbox, they've already somewhat made the decision that they're going to deploy on top of Solana. So I haven't had too many scenarios where I've had to like make those distinctions. Um, what I would say theoretically is that being here since 2020 and going through all the trials and tribulations of what we needed to do as an ecosystem to harden the ecosystem and what needed to happen on the technical side in terms of implementations, in terms of bug fixes, in terms of all of these things that we had to go through, is that when you are using one of these newer high throughput chains, you are in uncharted territory. Um, you are you are working on an architecture that you have no idea how it's going to perform when users come back in droves to use that uh, stack. Whereas you have three plus years 
of history in the Solana ecosystem of us handling those types of market events. Um, so that is the biggest thing that I don't think a lot of people understand is like, yes, it might be performant today, but what happens when the users 20x over the span of the next 12 months? What is You have no idea what that end state is going to be. The other thing that I would say is that the work that we did in the early days to create relationships with the necessary on-ramps, uh, implementation partners, or other things that now encompass the entire Solana ecosystem, that is something that doesn't happen overnight. And each one of these people has their own business and their own balance sheet that they need to think about and think about driving revenue. So like when it comes to custodians, exchanges, uh, just like data like Dune Analytics, Flipside, those kinds of people, you need to go independently with each of these new architectures and pitch them on why they should integrate your blockchain, where the users are coming from, and what's the business case for them. And that is such a long-term task that a lot of these people are not even going to be like dipping their feet into. So you might you might launch on another chain now, but then you know, you're not going to have all the tools and all of the access that you might have in the Solana ecosystem. So Solana is the complete package today. And uh, it's, it's why I think people shouldn't be going anywhere else, at least at the moment. Can we start to um, talk about some of these big maybe issues that you guys are, or maybe not issues, but topics that you guys are thinking about going into the into 2024, things like fees and uh, the SVM. So maybe totally I could pick on you. Um, how are you thinking about just like, execution basically just the economics of the svm right now at a, at a very high level yeah we got like lucky with the design um i think my the reason why the svm works the way it does and kind of the weird nuance about it that's very different from even like aptos and monad and all these other approaches is that every developer has to kind of go through this painful process of explicitly declaring all the state that they're going to read and write on the chain so effectively, every transaction is required to have a complete access list. And that means that it's very easy for the underlying runtime to go schedule everything and make sure that parallelism works. But that was luck, my dumb luck of working on digital signal processors. That was how you had to code on a DSP on, on mobile, is you had to lay out the memory. So like I knew exactly that if we do it this way, it's going to be fast. What was cool about it is that it, that information is what you need to then do local fee markets because then you can find hotspots by state. All of these NFTs are minting the same NFT. They're all touching the same auction. There's now contention on the writable part of that auction that's common between all of these transactions. And then you can sort them and pick the top ones for that particular state and then do the same thing for all the other ones. And that only is obvious in retrospect and should have been obvious because it's kind of very common database hotspot problem. But that information that we have allows us to do this isolation at the economic side. And that means that we can also build like multi, multi-dimensional 1559. It's kind of like the, the big next thing is you have exponentially increasing fees for everyone that's touching the exact same hotspot. And that creates a base fee that goes up and forces spammers to back off. And that means that like we can actually run DeFi and payments and NFTs and liquidations all in the same environment without them causing the bottom price of transactions to be the highest price of any use case. This is like mm. the key part that um, 
a shared system needs to solve is if you have use case A and use case B, if A can force the price for B to go up, B is going to move to its own chain, its own rollup. If we can't solve it, it means you should have SVMs on top of Celestia as, as your right, rollups, right. right? Like if we can solve it, it means it's possible to have a single shared computer that's atomic. And I think that completely changes the economics of how these systems work because you have hotspots that generate all the value creation. Like all the fees come from content, not from not from infra. And that that's like, in my mind, like the best economics you can have is when you're charging for user-generated content is like always new, always hot, is always being created. Infrastructure is always getting cheaper. So in my mind, like the only way that these systems survive, like over the long term, is not by separating the DA layer from execution. It's by combining the two and having hotspot content that's unique to the content of the system subsidize the infra to be like as cheap as, as possible. Hmm. Um, and I, I don't think that's possible to do in like, if those are separate teams, like it, it, it becomes very, very hard to align incentives, hmm. but it becomes very, very easy on a single integrated giant state machine. So that's... Yeah. You, you mentioned 1559 a couple of times. So I just can tell yep. it's like maybe top of mind for you. Yeah. Um, what, what do you think 1559 <laughs> got right about like alignment of incentives across different actors? And what do you think 1559 got wrong about alignment between different actors? Actually, actually I don't care about the monetary policy of it. What I cared about mm-hmm. it and I thought was really cool was that it's a exponential backup for spam. So you have some mm-hmm. resource on the network that... You have, you have a, the reason why this is like hard is that you have a bunch of machines that you don't control. They're all kind of slightly different all over, all over the world. They're all going to kind of behave a little differently. And you can force the network to over-provision and like have 10 times the capacity that you use just so everything executes perfectly well. Um, or you could actually provision it to be about like the, the average or a little bit above the average. And when things get saturated, you start increasing the cost of that resource because you know that some machine somewhere is going to start to slow down because it's getting hit in that particular chunk of memory and caches are being missed. And like just like, things are bad when things are redlining. It's just kind of like when you're running a system at, at its capacity, like stuff starts happening that you, that's not good. <laughs> and if you can start increasing the cost to run the system at capacity exponentially, you force the attacker to back off. And this is like, I think the really, really beautiful property of 1559 mm. is it kind of like at a very low level engineering way, it forces resources to be priced correctly. And you're actually able to manage the system and provision it better. Instead of trying to provision it for the worst case, you can do it up slightly better than the average case and force this kind of like the attacker to back off. So the system's always running well. Um, So I thought that was like, I think, again, I was very critical of the 1559 initially, but seeing it in action and work on Ethereum um, really switched my my mind. I feel like every resource that we have on Solana needs to have like exponential economic back off that if it gets saturated, you just push back. So the challenge, the reason why I was skeptical of it is because I knew it was going to raise the cost of access to the system for everyone to be basically at the cost of DeFi. So if you have DeFi in the system, you have arbitrage and arbitrage is like, I send a transaction that 
checks, hey, is this trade profitable? And if if it's not, abort. But if it is, take the trade. And I just spam the network. And as long as, even if 1% of my transactions succeed, as long as the ROI is above that, right. I will spam it. Spam You're incentivized the spam. Right. Yeah. Yeah. right. Even, even if, so I'm sending transactions that effectively fail because 1% of them will succeed and that will pay for all the fees. So that will naturally increase the, the, the cost of using the chain up to the cost of DeFi, right? Mm. Just no matter what you do, you're kind of like, if you have DeFi, you have monetary incentives to access the state. I have monetary incentives to spam and I will spam as long as it, it's like I can make money off of it. So I knew that 1559 was going to cause it. And that was my initial gut reaction to like not support it. But now that I've seen it work, I believe that multidimensional like 1559, we can force that specific sole USDC market on Orca. That's the one that all the arbitrage bots are hitting to start going up in price in terms of yeah. access. That will force the DeFi to pay more, but payments to continue to go through. And this this is kind of like the really, really, it, it's just, you only see the stuff, it's mm -hmm. obvious in retrospect, but like you have to actually go build something, deploy it, see it not work as expected and then try to like really wrap your head around it. What, when you're on a walk thinking about this problem, like who is in your mind? Like, are you trying to, are you optimizing the economics of Solana to incentivize for validators um, or for it to be like cheaper for founders and builders to build things? Like who, who's in your mind there? I actually think of it as like uh shared system like isolation like i have user a and user b how do i protect user a from b like how do i make sure like i think of it as like almost like security like i don't want an, a single attacker to increase the cost for everyone else just yeah. like in consensus you don't want a single attacker to like cause the performance drop for everyone else right like so it's almost like a, a uh <laughs> Like if you're building, like working in the Linux kernel, it's called a denial of service. If you have a single application that can spam the kernel to the point that somebody else can't use the network card. So you have to kind of build these like very similar problem resource containers like around uh, in any kind of shared system. Yeah. And with crypto, like you don't have like the, the hardest thing about crypto is that you have a, a, a financial incentive to spam. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like, well, I mean, the way I think about it is like, there's been like anti-network effects yeah. with usage for pretty much every network. And then with this, you probably could solve it. Can you talk a little bit on this fee stuff, local fee markets, but also like priority fees kicking in? I think with Jito, it yep. was just like, you started to see like a whole, but not all, my understanding is not all projects have like adopted this. So what does that kind of state look like today? Um, so, and so the way that like Solana priority fees work is that the app developer can add them to the, to the transaction or the wallet. So it's kind of flexible where it's done. Um, and usually actually recommend that app developers do it because they are monitoring their own markets and they know exactly when they're getting saturated or not. So they are probably best at figuring out what the priority price should be to access that. Um, and the way that the scheduler works, and it's not perfect is that it sorts all the transactions by priority fee. So that seems simple, right? You just like, you verify, validate that they can pay the fee, then you sort them. And then you start filling up the block. And there's two, two, two dimensions to the block. One is the total block space, which is like 
48 million compute units, and then no single writable account can exceed 12 million compute units. So if you have a NFT mint or a like liquidation or like bonk with whatever market <laughs> that is being spammed, right? That particular market has a state and that state is writable. And everyone that is trying to access that particular market is going to add compute units to that one location on chain. And eventually it will hit 12 million. And you can no longer add any more transactions to exceed that that capacity. So then you, you have to go find some other state that isn't saturated and you will add highest priority fees there. So that incentivizes people that are accessing that specific market to outbid the 12 million limit, right? To be at the bottom price there. But that doesn't mean that for block inclusion, you have to outbid the entire, like that market. You can still send a, a normal transaction. And like we... Our ping service sends, and if you go to like explore.solana.com, we have this ping and it sends unprioritized transactions hmm. and it shows you the average ping time of a, of a dumb unprioritized transaction and how long it would take for it to land in a block. And we do see some block saturation now, which is kind of cool. So it does, that does, what's cool about it is that like the incentives for validators are now like, okay, blocks are saturated. I should actually double the block space. So we have more hotspots that can all increase their fees concurrently instead of limiting the block space and trying to squeeze more out of the average user. Just for just to, for any listener that might be, might be unfamiliar with the topic we were discussing, when we were talking about fees going up and fee spikes and those kinds of things, our fee spikes are still fractions of a penny. So these are not fee spikes as well, you might be familiar with on, on uh, I, other. I think you, you have to be a bit more accurate there. So if you go to like Solana Compass, they have a pretty good real-time system. And you if you can look, you can actually look at max versus min and average versus median. And you see that like sometimes in a block, max extra fee is like one soul, like 1.2 soul, which is like, what do you ex expect to pay in Ethereum? That's a hundred bucks. So usually that means some bot liquidator, right? Decided that the maximum fee at that opportunity was like worth it that much. But at hmm. the same time, you can see the minimum fee was like z basically yeah. zero. It's right. It's the blue part, and right? The, and 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 the minimum also to your point, it still gets yeah, there's still yeah. inclusion. So that was the, that was observed yeah. minimum included fee, and then you can also look at the average versus the median, and mo most of the time there's a very large difference between the two, although sometimes they cross. Yeah, you can see that, right that, here. Yeah. yeah, well, this is like this is a perfect example of what you were just referring to with like the DeFi example. Totally, yeah. it's like somebody made the decision that the decision to send that one sole fee was profitable for that particular transaction. Yeah. Yet, uh, it's not affecting you know folks who are trying to use the chain for alternate purposes. Um, yeah, hmm. and like, and you cannot. So this is like, what about L twos? What about zk? You cannot solve hotspots with any of those technologies because they're content dependent. Like if you think about it, there's that one opportunity, that one price disparity between the whatever that market A and market B that's worth a hundred bucks. It doesn't matter if you if you like handle it in zero with zero knowledge proofs or in a roll up or whatever. It's the cost of that accessing that opportunity is a hundred bucks. 
somebody that is economically incentivized is going to pay a hundred to be first to access it. And it doesn't matter, right? Like I, moving that to a different layer is not going to solve anything. And this is like, to me, like the economics of a single integrated system that can handle multiple of these in parallel are awesome because yeah, let's increase block space. Let's handle more hotspots. Let's get more stuff on chain. That's worth money, right? Like, more NFTs, more of everything. <laughs> and the hotspots should subsidize the cost of the, the validators to just keep buying more cores. Because like, it, it's like a really, really well-aligned, like I think, economics. Yeah, just to round out this discussion, because it, I'd be remiss not to ask the question, because I feel like a lot of criticism has been like, oh, inflation, and it's not sustainable, and validators being subsidized by the foundation, and they're not profitable, this is all a Ponzi. This is all ter- And I want to give you guys an opportunity to really like parse this through because I feel like some of that is lost in the discourse of Twitter. So like the, this is, you guys push back. If I'm making a, an, an argument that's not logical, please push back. So my understanding is that Solana is going to run as long as the validators can pay for the hardware and for their operational overhead. Right? Like if if whatever their returns are cover the cost of the hardware and like the OPSEC, they will continue running the chain because why not? Right. They don't really care about the price as long as like they're getting paid more than the cost of the boxes. <laughs> right. A hobbyist is will, is gonna cost is gonna put their cost of their OPSEC at zero because they're doing it as a hobby, but they still have to pay for the hardware. Right now, a system from latitude costs three hundred and fifty bucks a month. Right, you can go buy it. It covers like one gigabit connect connection. Sixty four cents per terabyte is pretty cheap. So you have twenty two hundred validators right now times three hundred and fifty times twelve. It's about nine point two million a year in hardware costs. This is the bare bones. You can probably the lowest estimate we can give for running Solana, right? So it does. 30 million, uh, there's 30 million seconds per year, right? And it does about 500 TPS of user transactions, not votes. So nine bucks divided by 30 million times 500 is 0.00616. So that's the, the average price per transaction that, that the network needs to charge to keep it running. That's really cheap, right? Sometimes they're lower than that because our fee markets are like priority based. Sometimes they're higher. Right now they're much higher than that. So as long as like no one no one's gonna balk at the idea that Solana if if Solana can charge zero 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 six, so like what is that, point zero six cents <laughs> per transaction and survive, it means it's a very cheap network, right? That's sustainable. If it if the average fee is above that, great validators the network is making money if it's below that then yeah the network is subsidizing the, the cost of running it um and i think this is like kind of the the missed point is that the cost of proof of stake networks is really really cheap ridiculously cheap they're not paying for electricity to, to pick the quorum so it's just the hardware and because we can stuff a lot of transactions in this hardware the, the average cost that each transaction needs to pay is pretty low now that may not always be the case, right? Like during the bear market, it was not generating that many fees. I think it was like maybe doing about $3 million worth of fees per yeah. year during the bottom of the pair. Right now, I think it's close to a hundred million. 
So like, yeah, inflation, yeah. Inflation is like, uh, in my mind, it's like needs to be high enough for people to rationally want to stake, but low enough that not everybody stakes 100% of their tokens. And two, the slashing risk needs to be significant enough that people take care in picking who they stake with. This is all inflation yeah. and slashing need to balance as those two kind of two dependencies. I have a, let's see if something, I have a much, uh, I, that was a, I mean, that was a good pushback totally. I have a much like more left bell curve basically response when, when folks ask about like validators being subsidized by Solana, uh, Solana uh, the Solana foundation, which is cause you guys have the, um, Ben, what's the program called? The, the delegation, delegation, delegation program. program, right? Where like X percentage of validators, I think, are paid through the delegation program. Um, I would just look at like the history of ETH um, and like look at the, you know, consensus, basically like consensus in 2016 and 2017 and Lubin and the Ethereum Foundation and basically like spending capital to bootstrap uh, growth in an ecosystem with whether it's tooling or... Um, like Infura and MetaMask and infrastructure and grants, like that's a yeah. way to get a network off the ground. But I'd be curious how you think about that, Ben. Totally. Um, and I'll, I'll just make a, a clear distinction just so people are aware. So like the delegation program is not uh, the Solana Foundation paying anybody or anything like that to run infrastructure on the network. All it is is a delegation of the soul that the Solana Foundation has, some portion of the soul, to your validator. Um, for some duration of time so that you can get your validator up and running so that you're somewhat profitable and that you can start to go get your own organic stake with the intention that over time, the Solana Foundation removes that stake and you are your own self-sufficient validator. Um, and so that's not, there's no like payment of soul, there's no payment of cash or anything like that. It's just delegation of stake for some predetermined mm -hmm. amount of time. And then it's as long as you meet certain uptime and performance requirements. Like if you are constantly offline and all of these things, Solana Foundation pulls that away. Um, it's also important to note that uh, we recently hired a head of staking ecosystem, Ben Hawkins, who used to run the Cogent Validator um, in the Solana ecosystem. He's actually working on a revamp for how we do the delegation program in the era of the Solana ecosystem has grown to the point where it is. We might not need this in the form that it was current, that it was uh, created originally. How can we make it better and more efficient in the future, given that the ecosystem is like more mature and might not need this subsidy in the capacity that we're doing it at the moment? What percentage of the stake does the foundation run right now? That's a good question. I have a number off the top of my head. It's below 20, I think above 10. That's a, they just said it was like 14-ish or so. Okay, right. So so like the way that inflation works is global inflation. If this 14% left, everyone else returns go higher, right? Does everyone make sense? Does that make sense? So yeah. like, so that means that like there will be some amount of nodes that keep running the network, given that the fees right now are north of 100 mil. <laughs> right. So, so uh, it, I think it's really, like if, if you're looking at it from a like financial, like a like a PNL standpoint of yeah. the network, and people have done this for Ethereum and for Solana. What you're saying is fixed overhead is like roughly nine million. That potentially goes down with hardware improvements or Moore's law, yada yada. If you believe that, but yeah. it, let's just assume nine, yeah. ten million spread across everyone that participates and does validation, yeah. um, and then 
on the fee side, like the, the variable cost of, of processing a transaction relative to what you're charging, there's a pretty big gap there, like a margin of, of like an operating margin of uh, uh, like, I forget the numbers that you quoted, but it's, it's fairly healthy. It's like, like um, what you're saying is you need to believe that, you know, the network continues to crank out decent fees and look, sure, that margin might compress over time, but, you know, it's still pretty healthy tech-like margin. If, if it's content-based, it might not compress. If if the network was purely charging for data, it should 100% compress. This right, because like it's commoditized. Play. But if it's high-value content, then yeah. the margin stays high. This is, I feel like, the Achilles heel of the modularity thesis is that, like, the data is going to be commodity-based and also have, would have to compete with a network that can take content and subsidize the data, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. um, the point on inflation that I just want to hash out is what people in a proof of stake system I and mean, pushback or correct me if the, none of this is right, but if everyone is stake, if a hundred percent of the supply is being staked, no one gets diluted. It's sort of just, you yep. know, um, Math- mathematically inflation is, equivalent global inflation right like is equivalent to you burn five percent of the stakers account balances and then you do a split to bring like one you know 95 to one split Mm -hmm. right across the entire thing so the non-stakers are back to where they originally were but everyone else balance goes up yeah but it's really the non-stakers that get diluted yeah. The, so the the way that I've been trying to describe it to people who are not steeped in crypto, like my my father, for example, over Christmas, he was trying to understand Solana staking. And I was explaining it to him. It's kind of like treasure buying treasury bills. You are you are locking up your capital for some period of time. Obviously, this is not a loan, but it's the same type of mechanic. You are locking up your capital for some period of time in order to remain with the inflation rate of the monetary uh, system of the United States. And then you, if you keep buying treasury bills or you keep your money in treasury bills, you do not get diluted by inflation. But if you are like on Solana, if you are staking, you do not get it diluted by staking. Uh, yeah. But if, but uh, or by inflation. But if you are not staking, then you are getting diluted. Mm-hmm. The question that I just wanted to finish this discussion is around when you initially design the inflation curve back in the day, right? Uh, it, my understanding. So like you have to make certain assumptions about profitable network, you know, do you think that that is high today? Do you remark My- <laughs> it? How do you do that? I, I just, uh, I didn't think inflation mattered. And because I'm in like John Carbono's camp, it's just numbers moving around the, the black box. So like, I honestly, like I thought the curve that Cosmos had was pretty good. And most of the validators that we had initially came from Cosmos and they kind of picked a similar one. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was kind of the theory that I had. Like, I don't, I don't think it matters. Like, it needs to be high enough that some people stake. Rationally, you need some stakers to pick the quorum. The quorum can't cause a safety violation. They can halt the network. But a well-managed run system, the quorum cannot really do anything. Um, so you need some incentives for people to stake to pick the quorum and you need some a stick slashing for people to do a good job when they pick the quorum. That's mm-hmm. it. And like what yep. the curve is and like it's probably too high right now. Like I think it could actually be like 10 times lower and everything would be fine. So like uh, I don't think the costs matter that much at the end of the day.
All right, everyone. So we talk a lot about the institutions coming into crypto on Empire. Santi and I are both headed out to London March 18th to 20th for Blockworks's eighth ever Digital Asset Summit, DAS. This is an institutional buttoned up conference that we've hosted since 2019. I like to joke that it is probably the last remaining kind of suit and tie event in crypto. People are still wearing suit and tie. It's pretty funny, but you'll actually hear from a lot of the largest institutions in the world coming from Standard Charter, FIS, JP Morgan, Framework folks coming out, Wintermute, Van Eck, Goldman Sachs. There are a couple big themes of this conference. One, Bitcoin Catalyst, the halving and the spot ETF. Two, a view from the buy side. Three, RWA's tokenization and stable coins. Four, Four, global regulatory frameworks, five, institutional infrastructure, including banking and payments, and six, the macro case for crypto. If you have anything to do with the institutional side of crypto, you have to be there. Santi and I got you back. We hooked you up with a 20% off code. It is Empire20. There is a little competition running internally at Blockworks to see who can drive the most number of tickets. So help Santi and I out, register with our code, and you get 20% off. That is Empire20. All right, I mentioned them in the pre-roll. Now I'm going to bring them up again. It's Arbitrum. Santi and I are really fed up with these high fees, and we're really excited to have teamed up with Arbitrum for the next couple of months on Empire. As the leading Ethereum scaling solution, Arbitrum now powers hundreds of decentralized apps across DeFi, perps, NFTs, gaming, and a whole lot more. The team has showed us everything in the ecosystem, both now and what's to come, and we're really, really excited about it. Arbitrum allows both daily users and developers to interact with Ethereum at scale with low fees and faster transactions. The way the team got me excited was through portal.arbitrum.io. So my call to action to you is to get started by visiting portal dot arbitrum dot io go experience on chain like it was meant to be for a lot of empire listeners your crypto is not just another number on a screen it's part of your future i know santi and myself feel that way our security sponsor of this episode harpy takes this responsibility seriously and is the only wallet security tool that shields users from both on-chain threats and sneaky off-chain signature attacks if you've ever been in that situation where you're moving quickly you approve something on chain you realize that the address might be a dubious address or you're really hoping that you could take that back, Harpy has you covered. Harpy can redirect your assets to your self-custodied vault, ensuring they remain completely under your control, safe and sound. With Harpy's always-on monitoring, you're not just detecting threats, you're actively blocking and recovering compromised assets from malicious transactions before they can even confirm on-chain. Harpy is the only wallet security solution that protected 100% of its users from attacks like the Ledger one in Q4 which was an off-chain signature attack. So if you're serious about protecting your crypto investments, it's time to make the switch. Secure your wallet for free at harpy.io forward slash empire. That's harpy, H-A-R-P-I-E dot I-O forward slash empire. If you want it to be even easier, just click the link in the show notes. I want to get us into, um, start moving into the next part of the conversation, but like maybe to wrap this part about this, the you know SVM and stuff, there's this kind of... Uh, trend right now of like talking about the SVM for execution, Ethereum for settlement, Celestia for data availability, um, like Eclipse came out, obviously, like, I'd just be curious, maybe a two part question totally, like, what are your thoughts on shipping the SVM elsewhere? And like, maybe it's just one question, like, how, how does that impact you guys? Like, how does that tie into your strategy? Like, what are the economics of that in your mind? Like, what do you think of that strategy as a whole? And like, how's that going to play out? I'm a... Uh... Like, so the way to think of it is that, like, 
I hope I would wish my competitors were so blinded by greed that they build closed sword systems that try to keep all of their like jewels locked up. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. That would be great. <laughs> right? Like that that's kind of like you I love think, Linux. You love Linux, I can tell. Yeah, I mean like uh there's no way you could you could compete with a the fastest growing possible like ecosystem. And the fastest growing one is the one that like is able to commoditize the commodity parts of it the fastest and give them away. And that prevents a competitor from establishing a, a foothold and stuff like that. So like it would be bad for Solana if another parallel virtual machine was gaining traction as a roll-up environment, actually. Like um, so it's actually good, like even though execution fees that could be captured on Solana. Could, are now being captured on Eclipse, right? You can yeah. think of it as that way. The total addressable market of getting priority fees in any network is X, and now Eclipse is gaining some of that, right, instead of Solana. It's better for that to be SVM. It, it would yeah. be better if, if Coinbase launched an SVM rollup. It'd be better if Binance launched an, an SVM rollup than an EVM one. Yeah. Um, because yeah. I think the the bigger picture here is like getting more devs to launch more products and growing the overall pie and having a bigger share of that pie is more mm. important than having, you know, a big share of every You'd rather have them be SBM, be on yeah. SBM, <laughs> yeah. have them get comfortable with it. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, one, just one minor point around security and the developer experience, you know, obviously from my standpoint, one of the biggest issues that crypto faces today is security. You keep having re-entrancy attacks. Um, you could argue a language like move potentially is just more robust to fix security. One, how do you guys think about security in general? Like, and like, I think when, when I've talked to you years ago, it was like a lot of the projects in Solana were closed source. I think a lo- the majority now are actually open source, which is, I was surprised by that stat. It's Generally speaking, bias. Like, I, <laughs> I guess, <laughs> good point. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I, I just wanted to pick your brain on how do you think about security uh, at the code level, just yeah. preventing bugs, and and if Move is ever in your radar of like, you know, yeah, closed source is not going to save you um, because attackers will just fuzz the binaries. They, they have built tools that are sophisticated enough that it doesn't matter if it's open source or not, um, and I think it'll slow down growth, right? Like I my. Uh, on the security side specifically, Move I think is is pretty cool. Um, it's really really hard to build a language, and we have a team that is actually building a LLVM front end that will compile Move to SVM. And part of that challenge is making sure that SVM can support that, uh, and that's making some changes to the SVM environment that are like making it a bit more generalized to support languages with a bit with a bit heavier runtime. That's great. Um, I think that you can do the same proof systems with Rust. Connie Proofstiegs is for us. Sertura does this. So Squad's protocol proved their uh, multi-sig with um, using Otterseq's uh, prover. Um, so all the stuff you can do in Rust, you can do in Solidity too. Provers exist for for every language because they work actually on not on the most of the time they don't work in the front end language they work on some intermediate representation and actually the lower level you go the better for for like finding bugs in my opinion um, I think that 
security, there's some changes that I've thought about that I've proposed, but we haven't really like seriously considered them. My feeling for security is that uh, redundancy is the best way. You have two client implementations, right? Fire Dancer and and Labs, and maybe three, like Syndica is working on the Zig version. You can also have two implementations of the exact same Orca market built by different teams. And if the transactions ever diverge, you abort. We can do that actually in the SVM layer. We can add start adding support for redundancy at the implementation side. And I think to me, that's probably the only way we can ever make these systems robust and secure. Um, I'll, I'll add one. Help, but like, yeah. I'll just add one last thing on the security front and then we can move on to next topic. But um, I, this was a good opportunity to just plug token extensions, otherwise known as token 22. Uh, token extensions are basically like uh, the next iteration of the SPL token standard. Um, one of the key features of token extensions is something called permanent delegate authority, where theoretically you can mint tokens to this standard um, and say you have a DAO that owns the permanent mint authority. You actually have like burn and revoke rights over that token uh, in perpetuity until that is until that is uh, removed from that DAO. So, for example, there's a huge hack. Um, you say USDC is a token extensions token. 100 million USDC gets drained out of this thing. The DAO can actually meet together and take a vote to revoke those tokens directly from the wallet. Um, so that's just another thing as it relates to like compliance and security as we get further into like the maturation of crypto and crypto abiding by all the laws that we're going to need to abide by, at least in the United States. Um, that's something that we can at least throw a bone to regulators and like, uh, uh, people in, in the, in the legal profession, um, where, you know, we can avoid these types of, you know, huge hacks in the future, um, in novel ways outside of just the, the, the technology security that Tully was talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess USDC is kind of like this across all chains, is my understanding, right? And, and Tether, right? They can freeze it, they can right. burn it, they can, but not so, all. So they can they can freeze as it exists today, but until it get until they, if they were to change it into a token extensions token on Solana, um, that would give them full like physical revoke or burn um, capacity. You can always freeze the tokens in that wallet; they always just stay in that wallet. You just need to remint them elsewhere. Yeah. The yeah. The problem here is that the, the, the these are like the governance. Yeah, becomes. governance becomes hard, and then there's delays between the attack happens. You need like somebody to convince the governance, and that usually requires like a court order, and that's two weeks yeah. after that. Well, how are you thinking about <laughs> governance in general? Like when you sort of bring up multiple clients, totally like the thing I was thinking about in my head. I, I've seen you writing more. And I was like, oh, this is totally going into the next stage of like, now this is, you need mass yeah. soul, soul alignment, the vision of soul. And like, yeah, how are you thinking well, about governance in general? Well, alignment is just like uh, L7 engineering. You have to go talk to a bunch of people across the org and get everyone aligned. And you pitch them a doc and you're like, we're going to do this. Yeah. Do, are you guys going to uh, support it or block are we it? Aligned or not? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Well, I, I, like, how do you? <laughs> All think of a sudden, it? it's a job. Oh, man. <laughs> like, how do you think about who has the yeah, power? Yeah. Because if you, like, so, Linux, like you've mentioned Linux a bunch, and I can tell you have a strong affinity for Linux. Like decentralized, like open source, but like, uh, what's the guy's name? Li- like Linus has 
you know, lot, an overwhelming amount of power, I'd say, there. So, He's like, got how much, influence, but he like, doesn't have power. How much influence would you like to have in Solana? I don't think, I think influence, you can have as much of it as you want, as long as uh, everyone else can take it away as soon as you do something bad. So it doesn't uh, yeah. matter how much, it doesn't matter how much influence somebody has, as long as it's not actual power. Linus doesn't control Linux. He's got influence over it because he keeps doing a pretty good job. <laughs> he doesn't it. have power. He has the influence. <laughs> right, there. Yeah, right. Yeah. So like lots of people in the Solana ecosystem have influence. I mean, I probably have the most because of, you know, I'm an engineer and I kind of, I see stuff. But like, as soon as I, like people push back on my ideas all the time. And this has been probably because I hired a bunch of my friends that I worked with as peers that they were like able to like in their 10 years prior to Solana were like, no, that's a dumb idea. And it's like, we're not going to build that. <laughs> so given well, I, that like that, yeah. You're, yeah. I also think you're underselling it too. I mean, it's a testament to like your personality is that like people feel comfortable pushing back on your ideas because they know you're just trying to get to the right answer. And I think that that is so important at when it relates to the ecosystem and the technology that everyone is collectively building is that it's not what Tolly says goes. It's Tolly has an idea. Let's make this better. Yeah. yeah. And like that, that's been like, I think that's just kind of like how actually software is developed basically everywhere else. Like if you go inside Microsoft or Google, you have a bunch of teams with different needs and, and ideas of what they want to do. The CEO doesn't make any of those decisions. There's like people that have influence over the direction of the technology, but that influence is not based on the org chart. It's based on their ability to argue a specific design. Um, and I think that's actually like fine. Like there's going to be like, mm -hmm. like we'll fight over the right way to do economic, you know, exponential fees on right locks or like bonding curve for state. That's all fine. Like, and the, that process is good. And people like come to a decision like, yeah, you've identified the right problem and you have a good solution and it's the right one to do right now. We'll go fix, we'll go, we'll go ship it. Um, ultimately though, like I think you have this like power of the user soft fork and you've seen this play out, I think in Bitcoin land, probably the best during the, the block size wars. And that's the ultimate power. Like I think it's kind of the futarchy system where if people really want it, they can fork it. And like, there's an economic opportunity to fork, right? There's like a reason for somebody to, to go create at Solana, no Anatoly allowed, <laughs> right? And like, maybe yeah. if, if I suck, that would be viable. And there's nothing anyone could, I can do nothing to stop them. And as soon as there's enough, like mm -hmm. of a market demand to do that, all the centralized exchanges will list that coin and because they'll get fees from trading and they don't care, right? It'll just like, all, all that stuff is playing out, I think, in, in the, the normal kind of like development. I think there's stuff that we generally like to do is any questions of setting hyperparameters for economics, we leave it, we try to make that a validator like vote uh, because the economics impact their how they're able to monetize stake, right? And that impacts their ability to run the network. So generally that's been like, I think a pretty good filter is that like, hey, if this impacts how validators earn money, like 
this change is necessary for X, Y, Z. You guys set the hyperparameters. We'll try to, you know, or we just try to make sure that they don't cause the system to fail, mm -hmm. right? Like that, that's it. I've heard you um, maybe transitioning more towards like things that you're excited in terms of use cases. And Ben, I want to also pick on you because I think you see a lot of this. But I've heard you totally say, hey, look, I don't, I don't necessarily care if most of the value accrues to apps if, you know, not to talk about price, but I am curious, uh, you know, we, you could call it the fat protocol thesis, you know, people have tried to think about where value accrual will happen. We've talked a lot about economics and fees. Uh, I'm curious, picking on both of you, um, you know, what, um, how do you foresee the network to evolve as you start getting more usage, all these different applications and content and the you know, value accrual? I think like, um, <laughs> I would say that like up to now, all of crypto has been disappointing in the accrual because it's very reflexive. I think protocols on Ethereum make the most fees, not because they're serving the most users or creating the most values because ETH is valued highly and they're able to kind of get a percentage of that. And that to me is like a bad sign. It means that they're kind of like scraping a little bit off the top of the value of Ethereum and kind of like, it, and it kind of works, right? Like, and you can try to like meme it into ultrasound money, but what I would rather see is real world stuff that has value to humans, like a wireless cell plan, like something that is external to crypto that is forcing somebody that's like, you know, did their job and grew some food and got money to pay a validator to go include transactions. That kind of like real world tie into the economy, I think, is really, really important. And we need more of that and stuff that's not reflexive. I'd rather see things priced in real world assets instead of soul. And those generate enough fees for validators to pay themselves. Like if, if the DEXs on Solana were trading real world assets against USDC, and that was generating enough fees to cover the hardware costs of the network, it will run forever, <laughs> right? It's no longer dependent on the price of soul, no longer dependent on anything. It's just keeps running, right? And it's providing value to humans. It's done, right? But right now we're not there yet. Mm -hmm. Like things are still tied to the underlying spam resistant asset for some reason, mm -hmm. right? Like, and I think, like, I think this is part of the hangover from Bitcoin. And like, I think there is tremendous value that Bitcoin creates as a decentralized censorship, censorship resistant store of value. Like when my parents stuffed the USSR, literally they would only let people take 50 bucks a person. So seven people, $350, that was it. <laughs> like you need something like Bitcoin, right? But like, I think everything else that's in the execution layer doesn't need to be that. And Bitcoin runs without economics. It just exists because it's uh, because of the yeah. I, I I tweeted I tweeted about this not long ago. It's like the goal of what we're building here is a hardened infrastructure layer to allow people to create monetary transfer or, or value transfer applications. Um, I think once you have a hardened infrastructure layer the value accrual moves up the stack just as it did in web two, you know, people built applications, people built businesses on top of this tech stack and the applications were the things that accrued value and people can figure out value accrual mechanisms there. Now I'll caveat that with like the, like the hangover of Bitcoin and maybe like 
the the Ethereum ultrasound money meme is that you know it's entirely out of our hands. Like the Solana Foundation, Solana Labs, Anatoly, anybody, you know, the ecosystem alone can decide that hey, we want to introduce some like larger burn mechanism and we want to drive value to like the the Sol token or we want to do something like that, like longer term. It's it's a decentralized ecosystem and we, we don't know how that's ultimately going to play out. But the, the, the mission statement of why Tolly originally created the blockchain and what the Solana Foundation is trying to do from like an ecosystem growth perspective is to make it a easy to use platform to build these types of applications and have hopefully most of the value accrue to the applications that are being built atop. Yeah. Now for a, for a, this is where I foresee the skeptics saying, well, that that's blockchain, not crypto. Like why, why even have a token called soul? Like, you know, and the, and the, the real answer, how the is, network works. <laughs> exa- well, exactly. Right. Cause I, I was just, I was just imagining someone like saying blockchain, not crypto, but it's like the reality is you need a token for coordination and, and economic yeah. security. Like it doesn't obliviate the need for soul. It's just, yeah. if, if 10, if value has been created today on a 99, system have, yeah. have zero value. Yeah. Like the, you, like the, why would you like, as soon as you build a permission system, you're like, well, why don't you use a database, right? Like exactly. <laughs> the whole exactly. point of it being permissionless is that the, it creates trust minimization when you have a very large, uncountably large number of people that run the system, you kind of get a very hard sense of security, right? Like, I don't know what it, what it would take for these systems to like actually actually handle like world's finances like trillions of dollars per day moving through this. Maybe you do need a hundred thousand full nodes run by every mm-hmm. financial institution in the world, right? And there's no way that's a permissioned environment. So like in my mind, like the the highest impact thing we could build is permissionless, high performance, like you mm-hmm. know, single state machine. How how far off are you? Do you think from that vision, Tola? This like vision of Nasdaq on Solana. Um, Firedancer's performance numbers. We could probably get there, but it would we would have to cheat by like running on specialized hardware and specific data centers and stuff. But the fact that it would work would be like if there's if there's demand, like you can kind of get there and then start working on like, okay, how do we solve all these other problems? How do we get more data centers, more, more infra involved? Like the problem isn't, I think the technology is there already. It's just the demand is in there to drive everything else. Where do you think demand ends up coming from? Uh, this is a really good question, man. My, my theory is that like, when it first started, I thought like, I was replaying that moment in mobile when we went from feature phones to smartphones. And it was like one year you went from, we literally saw 80% dominance by smartphones. And I thought, oh man, we have to get Solana out the door as fast as possible. It's going to be like one year. It's going to be the iPhone moment and like, boom, and it's good to go. And I think what I realize now is that um, finance and money is something that humans really, really have a hard time giving up control over to automated systems for good reason. Because when this shit breaks, it's bad. <laughs> so it's going to take a very long time for re- like high finance to actually start kind of moving moving stuff over. But I like, you know, the, the world, the science fiction version of the future, 
100% of the world's finance runs on these systems that are trust minimized. Probably a big chunk of the execution runs on something like Solana that's like information bus that's synchronized at the speed of light is really, really cool, right? Like why why wouldn't you use it once it's there, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How long I, I, that's well, going to take see. a long, long ass time. <laughs> well, I, I think I want to get your thoughts on privacy on that point. I think that's a feature of the smart contracts. I don't think you need privacy for the quorum. Like I think, I think you need attributions for slashing and stuff like that. So you kind of like, if you're trying to build like a, some really, really low level privacy version of Bitcoin, you could probably do something very clever at the proof of work and quorum and kind of layer stuff on top to where things are super, super private. But I think for payments, like businesses want privacy, but they also want auditability and compliance and all this other stuff, right? Like there's there's so many different constraints that that feels very much like custom smart contracts for different for different features. Ben, where do you? I, I mean, I guess same question over to you. Like, where do you think the demand ends up coming from? Because you you probably talk to more folks building in Solana than anyone else. Yeah, I so. I've kind of like flipped on where I thought the demand was going to come from. I originally thought it was going to come from the growth of DeFi in the earlier days. Uh, like earlier days, I'm talking about like 2019 Ethereum. I thought that that was like a real pivotal yeah, moment. Uniswap, Coinbase, and, and totally. Yeah. Um, and I and I've kind of flipped to. I I guess it's like a product of like me maturing as like my own inner product builder, but like you need a product that is just 10 times better and equally as easy to use for the end user, for people to make a switch from one thing to another. And it wasn't until like somewhat recently where I saw that, well, people have always been talking about stable coins as this killer use case, but I kind of thought like, Beyond this, as I've talked to a few people who are building different types of payments or financial applications, specifically in like the RWA tokenization space, I'm specifically talking about like what Franklin Templeton is doing with their Benji token or what Ondo is doing with USDY is basically they're tokenizing a money market fund. So it's a yield bearing token, but it's essentially representing cash. So you have effectively a money market token that is yielding you whatever the risk free rate is that you can use as cash. So in a, in a future scenario, say the user experience of crypto is super easy. We have it easily custodied on your mobile phone and you can effectively do like a tap to pay type system. You have the option to hold a non-yield bearing cash in USDC, USDT or something else, or you have a yield bearing cash in like the Benji token or the USDY. Why would any consumer hold the non-yield bearing token over the yield bearing token? I currently, I have money in money market funds. If I ever need that cash, it's a minimum T plus two event for me to get liquidity for that thing. And then I can then go pay for groceries or pay rent or pay whatever I need to do. If I just have this yield bearing token sitting in my wallet, I can pay rent at any time with that token. And I think that's just like a fundamentally better product. The thing that is just impeding us right now is the user experience of that, which is why we were excited about Saga and about the mobile push and these types of things to try and make it more usable, move crypto from desktop to mobile. And I think we're still in that phase, but it's those types of applications that I think get a lot of people using crypto immediately. And then everything else is downstream from there. When you already have tokens in your wallet, then you're like, where can I put this to work? Oh, maybe I'll go buy an NFT. Maybe I'll use this application over here. And you're already crypto native. You're already digitally native. Yeah. 
Yeah, it, it it unlocks like nonlinear consumer demand. A different like the velocity of it is is I think going to really surprise all of us on the upside. Uh, you spoke about the saga. Uh, we uh, this was something funny enough. A lot of people were like, "Why are they wasting their time with this?" You know, I'm like, I actually felt that at the time when we had you, I felt that this is the type of thinking that is kind of a hallmark of your team, which is you're willing to try stuff that just for better or for worse, other teams just can't or won't. Um, and it was a felt like a moonshot, but it, you know now everyone's like, "Wow, this thing can actually disrupt." Now, now it's like, "Okay, can we disrupt the App Store? Can we disrupt this oligopoly?" And, so we we so sold twenty thousand phones to Apple and Samsung, six billion. So the probability of us disrupting <laughs> the App Stores are twenty thousand to six yeah, billion. Yeah. It's not zero, uh, but we, it's twenty thousand yeah. to six billion. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's like it's like so the you, Dumb and Dumber. You guys so are you're told, telling you guys me that there's a chance. chance. There's no, there's no, 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 yeah, sold out. Yeah, sold out because yeah, 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 of funk, basically. I mean, yeah. I, I, this is like kind of a meme and kind of a joke. Okay. But like, how has your okay your thought this process is, evolved around I, like using? I, yeah, I, I just want to get your updated okay. refresh views on Saga and this. The theory, yeah. and this sounds you guys push back in it, but I think it actually sounds good in theory. But I don't know if its base is if it's still based in reality or not, or if I've just, you know, like, Oh boy. Yeah. So, so like Apple and Google charge 20 to 30% on, on app store fees. That's a very large tax and that's very disruptable. The problem is, is like distribution and getting, getting like com comparable distribution devs are going to look at what, what makes them the most money, regardless of the tax. Right. Similarly to why nobody cares about Ethereum gas fees as long as you're making money. Um, so that's the thing that we need to overcome is the network effects. But it's a huge opportunity because the most of the way that the app stores make money is not from Uber. It's not the applications that you use for like for like the stuff that you think about. Oh, my mobile phone is really, really, really important for Uber. No. Most of the way they make money is from loot boxes, from all of these like games and everything else. That's like a hundred billion dollar business that Apple and Google simply take a cut off. And that's very disruptable because crypto people are super spenders on the internet. They're the whales. And a lot, a lot of how these games monetize is 1% of the audience generates 90% of the, of the revenues. So if we can get... 20,000, 100,000 of the spendiest people on the internet in the same distribution channel, it's a very lucrative channel, right? So that that's the theory. Like, is it going to work? I don't know, right? Like, and the reason why it would work is because those devs are now incentivized to get their whales off of their stores into Saga and they're incentivized to give rewards and reason for that to happen. So my theory was like, we launched this mm -hmm. phone, Solana ecosystem teams start building apps, crypto incentives, and something will pop. And that happened to be Bonk. But now you've saw like an NFT airdrop that paid for the phone, yeah. basically, so yeah. like a bunch of other coin drops. So like the big question is that works for a 20,000 audience. Can we scale this up to 100,000? Can we scale it up to a million? I mean, <laughs> I actually don't think you're crazy so, okay so here's what's happening on our end totally is um so blockworks is a media company and a lot of the ways that we make money is like advertising and sponsorships 90 like five percent of the world's or at least the us's ad spend is controlled by the three or four big uh, 
Group M, Publicis, Horizon, the big the big agencies basically. So you know, a, a normal person there might spend five hundred million managing Budweisers, like you know, TV spend alone. They have now started coming to crypto companies and crypto publishers and podcasters and media companies saying, and the reason that they're coming is because they believe that we have the wealthiest audience in the world, basically. They say there is no group of 20 to 30 year olds in the world with this much wealth. So we need, it's the highest value consumer in the world, uh, basically, is the crypto audience now. There are a lot of wealthy 40-year-olds, there are a lot of wealthy 50-year-olds in the world. There is no group of inter- incredibly internet native, sub 35 years old with this much wealth anywhere else in the world. And they want to do anything that is, they'll, they'll spend, uh, like in, in advertising at CPM rates, they might spend 10 times the CPM to go reach that consumer. So if that's the pitch for the Solana phone, like let's say, I mean, like my base case is that the, the industry will grow, let's say, in number of people by 10x um, in, in this cycle. Like if there's 20,000 people today, like then that's 200,000 people. Like it's a, it's a decent that's, size. Yeah, that's a real thing. So you need like at least 100,000 yeah. to make it like worthwhile from the hardware perspective. It's really, really hard to 20,000 units uh, in hardware. Oh, 100,000. I'm on board. I can get on board. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so like, yeah, that's... Um, and yeah. it... Yeah, what's, what's next? next? Uh, are you going to ship know. another 20,000? Like, we don't know. Raj and I are like, are wrestling with the with the idea of what to do. Um, we'll, we'll figure it out. But I think this is probably the one opportunity in a lifetime to drive a wedge into between like in Google and Apple. Like, I, I don't think there's any other, you, you will probably see any other one. So um, it's like, what else would I be doing? I don't know. <laughs> like, <laughs> are, are there, are there uh, other type of these type of moonshots that you've thought about or may implement in the future? Um, like phone like hardware is always like top of mind for me because of my background. So like, and I work, I worked on like the first segmented reality, like device, um, stuff like that. It's just, um, that stuff gets really, really exciting, but it's so early. Like you're layering like crypto risk of, is this crypto idea even going to have adoption to like, is the augmented reality thing going to have any compelling use cases, right? Like with a phone, do you at least have like a product that people use? Um, I mean, I'd be down to ship everything. Yeah. Like we've talked about like all sorts of random stuff. I think you have to have a, it comes down to like, this is a, could be a really cool idea. Can we find a team that we can fund to do that versus do we do it internally? Um, yeah. And there's a lot of trade-offs with both of those approaches, but if we're not the, like, I think if I wasn't like ex Qualcomm and had like deep connections to how to go build and ship this device where I knew like, okay, we will within two, within 50% of the, of the timeline, we will, we will actually ship this thing. If I didn't have that kind of confidence, I don't think I would be doing it. Um, it's hard to do that for things that you don't know. I have a question for both you guys. When you look at um the other the other ecosystems, like are there any is there anything that you look at the other when you look at other ecosystems, like is there anything that you say like oh they're doing it really really well and I want to take this from that ecosystem this year and start to implement it? Maybe Ben, it's on a 
marketing or BD side or totally, whether it's you know, Cosmos or something in Avalanche or something with that one of the L2s is doing, like anything that you guys see that you're really impressed by? I was impressed by Polygon's BD efforts last year. I would, I would like, I was very uh, dismissive. Like my theory was that like we shouldn't be paying for for logos or users or like it doesn't. None of the stuff matters. Um, and I think it does actually create enough momentum to where people will like. It it takes work to get any of those BD deals. You actually have to have like the CEO of that company decide, okay, I'm going to associate this thing with this. So they have to do due diligence and get the stuff over the line. When you have enough of those, people will be like, oh, right, they've been vetted by X, Y, and Z. I'm going to go build there. So that does actually create some 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 effects. Um, beyond that, like, I don't know. I haven't seen any anything that was like, really exciting. I think Celestia data availability sampling, the fact that they like built it and shipped it is pretty cool. That's a technology that I think is worthwhile to have in every blockchain. Like I think that that should yeah. be just adopted everywhere. Um, I would say, yeah, th- those I mean, two things I'm, I've noticed. I'm in, the, I'm in the same boat. I mean, there's nothing like major that stands out. Um, the only thing that came to my mind, which is not really something that anyone is doing, but it is the network effects of the EVM and the mindshare that comes along with that. Uh, in most of our conversations, um, where we know that them using Solana as the architecture for whatever they're trying to build is the right architecture for the thing that they are they are working on, it's so hard to get them away from the idea that they need to build on Ethereum or they need to build on Ethereum L2 just because that is where the majority of people have built or have been building over time. And it's a gradual process of convincing them otherwise that like, hey, you know, you're not foregoing decentralization. You're not foregoing all of these other things that you might have been told like here, let us walk you through it. Um, so the network effects, uh, effects around the EVM are definitely really real. Um, the thing that we obviously have on our side is that still feels like we're early in this in this very long term game, and it is very much a positive sum game. Um, so I, I I think that we are just looking for a portion of the overall pie. It's not like Ethereum's going anywhere or the EVM is going anywhere, um, but Solana is going to be a large portion of that pie moving forward. There can be only one. <laughs> well, uh, I've uh, to half jokingly but i i felt that uh like yeah like i feel like these chains like there's always a multi-chain world maybe but when you think about like the relevance of one chain it does feel like duopoly ish or monopolistic technology has always been kind of hovering around certain standards and ossifying so my thesis is like we're finally entering the stage where you have real applications and usage and that's when I think you start to realize the have and the have nots from a technology standpoint. Like, like and it all, it ultimately shows up in the consumer activity. You know, anyone that bridges, are they going back? How many more trades are they doing on Jupiter? Um, can you have drip elsewhere? Probably not because compression is like super unique. And ultimately, when I look at that, I, I think it's so far we've been in a state in crypto where even the top 10, there's stuff there that hasn't shipped. And, Crypto's been in a ten years of we capture the imagination of what if NASDAQ can come on chain, 
But we're, we're coming closer to that state, whether yeah. it's in the next five to 10 years. But I think you can reasonably underwrite based on real activity. And I think that's going to be a major theme in, in this next cycle where you're like, yeah, this chain actually has million devs or million users or multiple million users. And, and there's others that just can't and break. Um, and so I think that uh, that's I think that's different this time versus other cycles and historically in crypto. So for what it's worth. We've, uh, I guess we've covered a lot. Yano, anything else or Tolly, Ben, any parting thoughts? It's been great having you on and getting the, the refresh. It's been a, it's been a long year. I can imagine. Yeah. Uh, anything we're missing guys? Anything we didn't cover that you really want to hit on? No, I think we, we got everything. Yeah. Um, it's, it's always a pleasure coming on and talking with you guys. Maybe we can make it a, a regular annual thing. Uh, that'd be yeah. great. <laughs> yeah, one, one day you'll get that. One day you'll get that invite on uh, Lightspeed, Ben. One day. <laughs> Perfect. That would be great. Come on, Mert. I'm looking at you. Yeah, looking at Mert. <laughs> well, well, totally, Ben. Appreciate everything. Congrats on everything, guys. It's been it's crazy to look back and say 13 months ago we were saying will Solana recover post FTX. So it's very cool to see everything that's happened. <laughs> All right. Awesome, guys. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Appreciate guys. It. Thanks. Hey everyone, Jason here. Thank you so much for watching today's episode. Wanted to take a quick second to thank today's title sponsor, Arbitrum. We know you are tired of on-chain experiences that have unaffordable fees and frustrating transaction speeds, and that's why we partnered with Arbitrum. You can experience frictionless trades, lightning speed, and lag-free transactions, all for pennies per transaction. Explore Arbitrum's expanding ecosystem at portal.arbitrum.io. That's portal.arbitrum.io. IO. See you for the next episode. Hey everyone, thank you so much for watching today's episode. Really hope you enjoyed it. We wanted to take a second to just remind you about our upcoming Digital Asset Summit in London, March 18th to 20th. Santi and I got your back. Seats are limited and we hooked you up with a 20% off discount code. It is Empire20. If you heard it earlier in the podcast, there's a little competition running at Blockworks to see who can drive the most number of tickets. So when you register for the Digital Asset Summit, make sure you use our code Empire20. See you in London.